Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Sai. Isn't that a wonderful illustration? It was soothing me to sleep almost at one point, but it's quite a hard act to follow, actually. Um, we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 today. Um, I didn't introduce myself. Sorry, if you don't know me yet, my name is Tom. I'm one of the elders here. I was just with my wife, Sarah. We've got three children, and I've been coming here for 16 or 17 years or so, and it is a real, real pleasure to be speaking to you here this morning, and I'm really excited about what God's going to say. Do you know, the other day I was uh, asked just a little bit of paid work for a friend at church to clear a few trees in their garden, because I uh, work in forestry and I've got a chainsaw, and there were three or four trees, and there was one horribly thorny bush, really, really thorny. And it was really, really horrible to deal with it. There's a picture of a thorny bush. This was incredibly thorny. Um, and 2 Corinthians 8 is all about money. And money can be a bit of a thorny issue. And it can be difficult to deal with. And it can be painful to deal with. But we've just got to deal with it. We've got to talk about it. Jesus talked about it. So I'm going to read it out. Uh, it should be on the screen. Um, and with no further ado, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you, in, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Verse 16. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you out of his own accord. With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he's been appointed by the churches to travel with us to carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honourable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found to be earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. We'll stop there. 
So we're going to look at this text and we're going to see what's, what's going on for Corinth that means Paul says these things. And we're going to look at four practical applications that Paul encourages the church at Corinth to give. He, he encouraged them to start giving, to keep giving, to give confidently, and to give generously. But before we get into that, I just want to say that over this pandemic, we saw a huge disruption to church giving and and regular giving. Meetings were cancelled and families were hit hard by jobs drying up, basically. And despite this, despite this emotional and financial hardship, the church gave over £12,000 to individuals and families within the church that had been affected by the pandemic. This was in addition to the annual gift day. You are a beautifully generous people who have faithfully given to all Jesus is doing in his church. Thank you and well done. The Corinthian church, as we can see from that title screen that Sarah Welch did, was gripped by a love of sex and a love of money. Paul has been addressing the church and he's confronted their views on sex and now he he turns their attention to money. Paul is really keen that money doesn't become an idol to the church, preventing them from receiving more of God's gifts and grace. As we've heard from Sire already, Corinth was located at a strategically important location, allowing them to be a very wealthy church. This prosperity had spiritual pitfalls. Paul reminds Timothy of of this in his letter to him, 1 Timothy 6.10, says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. This is really strong language. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. They've lost their salvation through the love of money, it seems to say. What is clear through Paul's teaching is the desire to give generously to the church is the outworking of God's grace in our lives. And that hoarding money stunts God's growth in the church. It doesn't affect how much God loves them, and he's very careful not to command that the church gives, but to encourage them to give generously themselves over to Jesus and allow him, Jesus, to increase the gift of generosity in their hearts. And he uses the Macedonian church as an example. We've got a map. We should have a map of the Macedonian church because we have to have a map. We do have a map. Oh, it's not... Okay, fine. Yes, so the Macedonian church is there, and I didn't know this. It was really cool. So that included the Philippian church and the Thessalonian church and some other churches as well. So when we hear Macedonian church in this text, we could be reading about the Philippians or the Thessalonians, the churches that we know from our, from our um, New Testament. But there's, a, there's other churches as well. And the church here was responding to the need in Jerusalem, okay, where they were struggling with poverty and persecution and needed relief from other churches. Verses 2 to 3, what we can see is at the very start of this chapter, the Macedonians are already experiencing extreme affliction and extreme poverty. And those are extremely extreme words, to be extreme. And their generous giving surprises and delights Paul. They display a type of generosity that just isn't found in the world. Out of their poverty, they literally beg Paul 
for the privilege, and it is a privilege, of giving their money to their brothers and sisters. It doesn't matter to them that they're going to experience further hardship or that their money is being spent in another church. They love their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem more than they love themselves, and they want to bless them beyond their own means. Why were they able to give themselves so selflessly? How were they able to give beyond their means and out of their poverty? Paul tells us, verse 5, Paul attributes this surprising generosity to the beautiful fact that the Macedonians gave themselves first to Christ and then to the church. This short statement is so short and profound and important. It gives a glimpse into the most wonderful truth that we heard in 1 Corinthians, that you as Christians are not your own. You are bought with a price. You've been purchased by his blood and you belong to him. It's from this place that the Macedonians give themselves to the church. Their generosity was an overflow of their joy despite their poverty. And when we surrender our life to Jesus, everything that we do, everything that we are, everything that we own is given to him for his glory. We also come to see that everything that we have, everything that we possess, everything we're able to give to him is already a gift from him. That there's nothing that we can claim is our own because all that we have is given to us by his grace. I want to show you an example of this. I've got some money here. Sorry, can you come up and be my guinea pig? Right, I'm going to give you this money, Sai. I think we'll do it here. You have to lie down there on your back, and you can't breathe, you can't move, your heart can't beat, you have no muscular power whatsoever, other than the ones I give you. Um, don't forget you can't breathe. Okay, there's a bit more money there than I anticipated, so good luck. So, Simon, you may now breathe. Phew. You may now have your heart beating. Good, I think he's doing that already. Simon, you may sit up. Okay, and at any time, you can take the money I've given you. So if you can reach that money, take it, but you can't move anything else. Okay, Simon, you may now stand up. Okay, you may walk freely and take all the money that I've given you. Okay, there's no restrictions on you anymore. I hope that I'm demonstrating. Sorry, there's so much money on the floor. I didn't quite mean for it to be like that. God has given you the breath in your lungs. He's given you the hands which work, the intelligence to, keep, to complete the tasks set by your employer. And he's given you the money you earn. He is in control of your salary, your benefits, your pension, he gives you all that you have. We need to understand that as Christians, everything that we are and everything we have, no, you keep the money, it's yours, is a gift from him, just like that money from Sai. The generosity of the Macedonian church was born out of a complete and total surrender of the soul. This liberated them to give. It gave them the freedom to give. 
without thoughts to their own worldly comfort. It's easy to give money away if it's not ours, and what we have belongs to God. The natural consequence of a life given to Jesus is one that selflessly gives financially to God's purposes, and the desires to give is itself a gift from God. Look at verses 6 to 7. Titus is going to complete the collection, which Paul refers to as an act of grace or a gift from Jesus. He goes on to say that just like other spiritual gifts that God has given you, faith, speech, knowledge, excel also in the gift of giving. It's a gift available to and to be practiced by the whole church. And it's an expected outworking of a life given to Jesus. Just like other gifts that God gives, we have to practice using them if we're going to grow in them. Giving, it seems, is no different from this. Paul doesn't compare it to healing or prophecy, but to speech, knowledge, and faith, something that is common to everyone in the church. And money, too, is universally dangerous to every single one of us. It's therefore not required or commanded by Paul or Christchurch. No one is commanding you to give. It's not a rule. It's not enforced. It isn't linked to how much God loves you. It's not connected in any way, shape, or form to your salvation. God loved you, every single one of you, before the creation of the world. He doesn't need your money. Paul is just as clear in verse 8. He doesn't command the church to give because he knows that's going to play right into the hands of legalism and dead religion. And it's also totally missing the point. Giving is a secret act between you and God that demonstrates that you are willing to put everything on the line for Jesus. Sorry, can you come back up here for a moment? Can I borrow a little bit of that money? It doesn't matter how much. Okay, Okay. it doesn't matter how much, but you've given me 2p. Oh, oh, okay, Uh, there we go, okay. Thank you, thank you. (laughs) Now just imagine for a moment that Sai didn't lend me, you can sit down. Don't stand awkwardly there. Just imagine for a moment that Sai didn't lend me anything, that he refused to give me even one penny. What would this reveal about his heart? What would this reveal about his relationship with me? If he wasn't even, of everything I've given him, he won't even give me one penny. The way that we treat and the way that we handle money, whether it's our master or our slave, reveals how we're also treating God. It reveals whether our our identity is found in the giver of all things or whether it's in the temporary wealth that he's given us. Why is it bad to have your identity in money? Why is loving money so sinful and dangerous? It's great, isn't it? Why is it such a thorny issue? Because it offers to replace what we come to God for through lies and deceit. It changes how we view our possessions. We're in danger of keeping up with the Joneses or, or making sure that we have the latest gadget or the shiniest car, but the reality is, the beautiful reality is, Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite knowledge, the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. Philippians 3, 8. Rest. Money tells us we can find rest through early retirement or expensive holidays or luxury dining. Here's your rest, says money. Here's why you've worked so hard. Here's why you've been slaving away, because I can give you all this rest. But Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and laden, and I will give rest for your souls. In him we truly find rest. And this is the only rest that will satisfy you. The only rest that will give your soul peace. Or self-sufficiency. The love of money teaches our heart that we're able to provide for our family. We are able to pay our rent or, 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 or mortgage. We're able to survive and thrive in this world because we're earning all the cash. We've done it. We did it. What an awful lie that is. As you saw from the illustration this morning, that the only reason we're able to open our eyes in the morning and take our first breath is because we're given that gift by God. It's Jesus that sustains our soul, and it's him we look to for our daily bread. So we mustn't let money rise up and become a thorny bush in our lives. We must sure it remains in its place, a gift given to generously bless others and serve our needs on this earth. So I'm going to look now at four ways Paul encourages the church to give. Number one, start giving. It's a very good place to start. I won't sing. Verse seven, it says, excel in this gift also. Don't ignore it. As elders, we have no knowledge of who gives and what amounts are given. We don't ask, we don't know. Only one or two people involved in church finance know. However, what we can see from the analysis of our finance guys is that there is a sizable portion of regular members of this church who don't give regularly. Now, I'm not concerned about the amount of money given, but what does worry me and really worry me is what might be going on in people's hearts or in people's life circumstances. The Bible is really clear. Generosity is an overflow of God's grace in your life. Verse 9 mentions the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor, that by his poverty you have become rich. By the rags and blood of Jesus you have been placed into his kingdom as an heir and will inherit all the riches with him and feast at his table at the end of time, just like we were singing this morning. Romans 8.17 says that we're co-heirs with Christ. You share in his abundant wealth now and will do forevermore with him. My friends, you are rich. Rich indeed, but not just spiritually. We are rich materially. We're going to do hands up. Put your hands up if you own a car. Okay, I'm going to say that that is nearly all of you. If you had your hands up, you are in the top 10% of global wealth. If you own a car, 
You are in the top 10% of global wealth. We can all give. We are all very, very, very blessed materially. So I have a very practical suggestion for you. If you're here this morning and you know that for whatever reason, your life just isn't lining up with Scripture here, for some reason you're not willing to give, you know that there's a thorny bush growing up in your heart. And this is a little bit painful to hear. Can I encourage you as soon as practically possible to log into your bank and set up a standing order to the church for one pound? Just one pound a month. I'm not looking for your money as an elder. Jesus doesn't want your money. He wants you to be giving to him unrestricted. He doesn't want there to be something in the way of that relationship you have with him. All I'm asking you to do is demonstrate between you and God in that secret place that you are willing to give to him and that you find it hard and that you want to start. There's no shame intended by what I'm saying, but if you're feeling a godly grief, like I mentioned last week, then just allow God to work in your heart and break the stronghold that money so, so easily builds. Number two, keep giving. Verse 11 says, so now finish doing it well. And in verses 10 and 11, Paul acknowledges that the church has started in their gift of generosity, but it's petered out. And their gifts have stopped coming. The the pleasures and abundant wealth around them were causing them to stumble. The thorny bush grew up. It wasn't there. They were giving and it grew up. It appeared. Something we have to regularly visit. Selfishness has crept in. Jesus also spoke directly into this when he tells the parable of the father, the father, the farmer sowing the seed. The text is on the screen, but I won't read it through. You know, he throws the seed down and some of it lands in the thorns and the thorns strangle the seed. And afterwards he says, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the world, word, and it proves unfruitful. So Paul warns Timothy that many have been led away by money, which has pierced them, and Jesus likens the deceitfulness of riches to thorns. Don't allow the deceit of this world, whether it's buying the latest car, the latest phone, or the newest clothes, or the biggest house, don't let the deceit and the lies of the promises of happiness rob you of the joy that only Jesus can satisfy those desires. And some of them won't be satisfied until you get to heaven. Furthermore, Jesus promises to clothe you in heavenly clothes when you meet with him in the air. And he promises, and I think about this one a lot, that he's preparing for you a room in Father God's house. The perfect house that you will own will be in heaven. And you will live with him on the renewed earth. The deceit of the worldly wealth and materials is that they're just simply a shadow of what's to come. And Jesus makes it clear, you can have your treasure now, or you can have your treasure later. You can serve God, or you can serve money. You cannot serve both, because money whispers all the promises God makes and doesn't deliver on them. Third point. Give confidently. Paul says that he's sending Titus 
and two other brothers to collect the offering to take it to Jerusalem. He doesn't want to give the devil an opportunity to destroy God's work here, and he wants to be totally above reproach before man so that no one can question what's taking place. Do you get that sort of dynamic? I'm sending Titus, I'm sending a brother, and I'm going to send another brother, and they're all from different churches, so nobody's going to get involved where they shouldn't. Now, I've barely been an elder a year, but I can say that Christchurch has a very high financial integrity. Every month, the spending is scrutinised by a bookkeeper who reports everything back to the trustees and the elders. The accounts are signed off by a very qualified accountant, and no budgetary decisions are made without consultation and prayer. There's also, like Si mentioned in the notices, every year we have an annual general meeting, which kind of sounds a bit dull, but when you think about it, when you think of all the money that's being raised, it's really important. This is where it's going. It's taking place next month, 1st of November, and the trustees report to everyone how much money's been raised and where it's been spent. It's an open book. This is Titus and two brothers plus. Honestly, the devil hasn't even got a toehold, let alone a foothold. And I say this because I want you to know that Christchurch is a safe place for your contributions to be used effectively for the work that Jesus is doing in Hailsham and beyond. So my fourth, my final point is was very suspenseful, to give generously. Mark 12 has the story of the widow with the two pennies, right? And uh, if you don't know that story, Jesus is sitting at the temple and a rich leader pours loads of money into trumpets and fanfare and everyone gives him a clap on the back saying, that was so generous, look how much money you've put in. Millions. And then a widow puts in two copper coins which make a penny, and that's everything that she owns. She puts in one penny, and that's everything that she owns. And Jesus says, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Why we give, and how much we give, is absolutely directly related to how much we trust God. That really challenged me as I wrote it. Why we give and how much we give is absolutely directly linked to how much we trust God. In this story, the widow utterly and completely trusts God for every single need in her life, her clothes, her food, a place to sleep, Knows, she knows that her father will take care of her and provide for her. And this results in the most generous giving possible. She doesn't hold back a penny. Jesus measures her generosity not by how much she gives, but by how much she has left for herself. And that is God's measure of generosity. But that's quite exciting for us as a church. Because it means we don't have to be a millionaire to be a generous person. Because it's not about how much you give to God. You could only have £10 a month. That's all you've got. That's all you've got coming in. If you give a pound and you only have £9 left, you'd probably be the most generous person in this whole church. Isn't that wonderful? What God does turns things upside down. Our trust and our generosity is measured by how much we keep for ourselves. 
And there are two rewards for us to choose in this life. We can have one reward now, or we can have one reward later. One from the world, or one from heaven. One temporal, one eternal, one limited, and one infinite. We all have to decide where to allocate the resources that God gives us. Not even Jeff Bezos can afford everything, it's true. I worked it out. He can't actually afford a thousand cruise ships, for example. It would bankrupt him. And he's the wealthiest man on the planet and he can't have everything. He has to decide where to spend his money and what to sacrifice. And if it's true for him, it's certainly true for us. We have to sacrifice what we want for what we need. We have to decide, do we sacrifice our comfort for Jesus or do we sacrifice Jesus for our comfort? Let's have the band up as I close. Oh my gosh, that made me jump. Thankful I didn't swear, actually. Um, <laughs> let's have the band up. I just read that bit. I've got confused. A penny fell on the table and it's thrown me, okay? Now, try and get that moment back. Dear church, do we want to be a people who give themselves first and fully to Jesus Christ and then, by the will of God, to the local church? Do we want to be a people that rejoice not in material wealth, but in the riches and splendour that is given to us by the risen Lord Jesus Christ? Do we want to be a church who are composed of people that are ruthlessly living not for their own comforts, but for the salvation and relief of other brothers and sisters in other churches in other nations? Do we want to see the kingdom of God grow and prosper? I can see one person nodding. I know we all want to see that. I know it's a deliberate question. But these are really important questions to be asking ourselves when we consider our giving. So I'm going to invite you this morning to give. I'm going to invite you to give yourselves to Jesus. And I'm going to invite you to commit your ways to him. Because that's where it starts. To surrender your heart and your body, your mind, your soul, your possessions, your finances. Just surrender it to him this morning. Maybe you've never surrendered to Jesus before. You don't even know what that means. Maybe that you've only surrendered in part. And there's other areas of your life that you've kept away from him. I'd like to pray for us all this morning and in your heart, invite you to surrender him. Should we stand? And I will pray. Dear Father God, I have a tendency to live life my own way for my own pleasures. I know the plans and purposes you have for me are better than my own, and I'm sorry for all the times I've done what is wrong in your sight. Thank you that because of Jesus, I'm forgiven for all the wrong I have done. Lord Jesus, I surrender my heart to you this morning. I surrender my finances, my time, my desires to you. Yes, Lord. Lord, I ask that you would increase the desire in me to be generous to you. Help me to remain thankful for all that I have given and to spend this life giving it away in light of eternity that awaits me. Lord Jesus, everything I have is yours. Amen.